Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. The provincial government is getting backlash after scaling back its COVID-19 vaccination over the Christmas holidays. Are they able to catch up with other countries? How does the new strand of COVID-19 affect the current vaccine? And Hamilton Elementary classes might not start as scheduled if the board cannot distribute remote learning technology on time. What's being done to get them on track? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. COVID-19 vaccinations, uh, as we know in Ontario, expected to return to full operations today after being scaled down over the holidays. Now, the provinces, there were five vaccination clinics open on Sunday. Ten were back online yesterday. It says all 17 are going to resume inoculations today. But critics, and rightfully so, have taken issue with the pause in vaccinations over the holidays, saying that the province just can't afford to delay immunizations, not at this point in time. The Ontario Ministry of Health argued that was requested by various hospitals due to staffing issues. But hold on a minute here. Because Doris Greenspun of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario said that Quote, the virus doesn't take a weekend, doesn't take time to sleep at night, and it certainly doesn't take Boxing Day or the holidays off. And many physicians, we're seeing this on Twitter, have come out saying that they were willing and able to work through the holidays to administer these shots. Including one ER doctor who tweeted, quote, Our vaccine clinic is extremely well run, and we have many physicians and staff working 24-7 organizing this. Any policy failure is that of the Ministry of Health and Premier Doug Ford. They forced us to close from December 25 to 27. We were ready and willing to work. So last night, the head of Ontario's vaccine task force, retired General Rick Hillier, admitted that, yeah, they got it wrong. We got it wrong. Uh, We did it with honorable intentions. We felt that the folks working in the long-term care homes who have reduced their staff somewhat during this sort of traditional holiday season to maybe give a a little bit more of a break to some of the people who've been laboring so hard over the last 10 months in such terrible conditions and under such terrible tragedy uh, to look after the people that they love and look after so well and and that it would be wrong to be trying to call them out into vaccination centres during those two days and and therefore we shouldn't do made that decision. I take responsibility for that, and clearly we got it wrong. We've been slammed. We've been spanked. Uh, we'll pick up our game. We'll get on from here. should mention, this is not just an Ontario thing. Nationally, less than one-fifth of one percent of the population, about 56,000 people, have been vaccinated. That's according to data from Oxford University's online tool, Our World in Data, and that's far below other countries like the U.S., the U.K., Bahrain, and Israel. So what gives? Joining us now is Dr. Armit Arya, palliative care physician specializing in long-term care. Dr. Arya, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning, Rick. The Office of the Ontario Health Minister, Christine Elliott, telling Global News that the province is now changing its vaccine policy and will no longer reserve the second doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, but getting all of the initial 90,000 shots out the door and expect to finish them in the next several days. Uh, that a report from Global's Abigail Beeman, who says that the change is due to confidence in the supply chain. How big of a development is this? 
Well, I'm very thankful that they finally recognized their mistake and they acknowledged it. But I mean, of course, as you mentioned, I mean, we're in the big, you know, in the middle of the biggest public health emergency in our lives. I mean, frontline health workers like myself, to be very honest, are so worried. I mean, we're lying awake at night worrying about people getting infected from COVID-19. And specifically when we talk about long-term care, I mean, we're seeing such devastation in in these long-term care homes, even at this point during the second wave. I mean, we're seeing these exploding outbreaks that are occurring from border to border across the province. So why would we even think about delaying something that would prevent future deaths and suffering? On more than one occasion now, we've heard from Premier Doug Ford calling this vaccine a game changer, yet less than a third of the vaccination clinics across Ontario, 5 of 17, were operating over the Christmas holidays. Provincial health officials, as I mentioned, said that staffing challenges over the holidays were to blame for less than 500 shots being given out. Um, That uh, was, I believe, on Christmas Eve. Quebec administered 6,000 vaccinations last Thursday. You sent out a tweet yesterday, and I quote, The Ontario government saying they paused COVID-19 vaccinations over the holidays due to understaffing and long-term care raises an obvious question. Why are these facilities still understaffed in the first place 10 months into this deadly pandemic? So what gives? Yeah, I mean, it's it's completely flawed logic. It just doesn't make any sense to anyone. I mean, we've had months to look at the staffing crisis in long-term care. I mean, just as a comparison, because we're talking about Quebec's um, rollout of the vaccine, when we're talking about staffing in long-term care, Quebec, in uh, at the start of June, hired 10,000 PSWs called orderlies in that province. They trained them, they hired them, and they paid them a decent living wage. And in comparison, our province's response was so late. It was so negligent in terms of, you know, uh, protecting these residents. And this is why we're hearing of these heartbreaking stories of abandonment and neglect, where people are not getting enough food and water. It all comes down to staffing, Rick. I mean, you can't do anything without staffing in long-term care, whether it's infection control, sort of getting people vaccinated, providing them basic care, food and water, monitoring them for a deadly virus like COVID-19. It all comes down to staffing. So it just doesn't make any sense. So how is Quebec able to do what they did and Ontario isn't? Does it come down to leadership? Does it come down to a plan? Does it come down to to people not wanting to be PSWs? What is it? So I think it's a combination of issues. I mean, one thing I wanted to point out is that Quebec is taking the vaccine to the long-term care facilities themselves, right? This is the Pfizer vaccine, which, uh, a reminder to our listeners, uh, has to be stored at uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius. But, um, you know, the packaging actually says that for five days prior to vaccination, you can store it at two to eight degrees. So, I mean, why did we not have refrigerated trucks rolling out to these long-term care homes with, a, you know, a team of like nurses, uh, family physicians, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, paramedics? I mean, we have a huge list of people that would gladly volunteer at this time uh, and, you know, sort of roll these vaccines out 24-7 to save lives. Our guest is Dr. Armit Arya, palliative care physician specializing in long-term care, and we're talking about COVID-19 vaccinations here in Ontario. Expected to return to full operations today after being scaled down mightily over the holidays. Um, this is the same government, and I don't want to get too political, but it is you know politicians that are making these decisions in conjunction with you know the, the, the health table or the COVID-19 health table. But this is the same government that delayed a province-wide lockdown until after Christmas so everyone could get their shopping done. Just before the holidays, Premier Ford said, quote, I'm not here to play politics. I'm here to save lives. Well, if that's the case, he's failing miserably. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And we only have to look at what's happening in long-term care facilities, um, you know, 10 months into the pandemic to really see the extent of the failure of leadership, the lack of decisive action when, I mean, we really desperately needed this to all happen months and months ago. I mean, we have, a, we, as I mentioned, we have a critical staffing shortage. And, you know, the failure to lockdown was something that was absurd to many people, because if we just think about it, exponential growth of the virus, Rick, exponential growth means if we lock down later, I mean, we're going to have to lock down for longer. And we're literally sacrificing lives. We're choosing to sacrifice lives uh, in the interim when we don't, um, you know, initiate these critical public health measures as early as possible. The newly approved Moderna vaccine is scheduled to be administered this week to those in Ontario's hard-hit long-term care homes. What challenges lie ahead with uh, administering this vaccine? Yeah, so there's several challenges. I mean, I think that they need to sort of change the rollout, not just to seven days a week, but actually to 24-7. I mean, once again, it's about uh, getting as many vaccines in people's arms as soon as possible. But it's also because frontline health workers, I mean, we work shifts. Right. People work night shifts and evening shifts. So just simply having a nine to five vaccination clinic doesn't cut it. Um, the other thing is, for, with, with respect to frontline health workers, these are people that don't have decent living wages or paid sick leave, even at this point during the pandemic. I mean, we've called them heroes. But actually, sadly, many of them are in food bank lineups or they're you know, struggling to pay their rent. So it's unfair now to ask them to now leave their job and volunteer time to come to a hospital to get their vaccine. If we take it to them, there's going to be more uptake. And if they have paid sick leave, they won't be scared of, of you know, the side effects of the vaccine. Even if 10 percent of them have a slight fever or headache the next day, then they'll be OK with taking that because they're getting paid for sick leave. And the other critical thing in long-term care and across the healthcare system that we have to really plan for and think about, and I haven't heard anybody speak about this, is the actual side effects of the virus. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, the side effects of the vaccine, which I just mentioned, fever, headache, fatigue, which are minor and nothing to really worry about. But we may have to test people from COVID-19 to make sure that's not what it is when they get those side effects. So it may actually result in this, short, in, in, in this shortage and this exacerbation of the staffing crisis in long-term care when these health workers have to isolate and wait for test results. Hmm. Very interesting. Our guest is Dr. Amit Arya, palliative care physician specializing in long-term care. Rick Samprin in for Bill Kelly here on The Bill Kelly Show on AM 980 CFPL in London and 900 CHML here in Hamilton. Uh, the delivery of the Moderna vaccine comes as a the protest was held Sunday, and I think there's another one out uh, today outside mm-hmm. a long-term care facility in Scarborough. You've probably heard about it, the Tender yep. uh, tender Care Living Center. 43 residents at last count have died. Uh, more than 100 others are infected. 69 staff have tested positive. They're in isolation. Uh, families of the residents inside this home are asking for more staff to be brought in. Uh, does that solve the problem? It's got to be just, uh, I know you've mentioned more staff is needed, but it's got to be a little bit more than that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, we have to ask ourselves as a society at this point as to how this is even possible, uh, you know, in a wealthy country like Canada. I mean, how can it be when we're speaking about tender care specifically and many other long-term care homes that, you know, we're having vulnerable seniors going without food and water, without basic medical care and monitoring? I mean, this is absolutely abhorrent. And this is an emergency. I mean, we need all hands on deck in these sort of homes. We need to think of it like, you know, a plane crash, right? If we had a plane crash, we would not hesitate. We would send paramedics. We would we would pull out all the stops, Rick. So that's absolutely what's needed here. I mean, if it takes the military, it takes the Red Cross, that needs to happen. And especially with the deadly virus where people can, you know, die in hours from COVID-19, I mean... 
every minute and every second literally counts. We're going to be talking about the new variants coming up after uh, 9.30. Does the new variant or the new strain of COVID-19 change anything in terms of how we should be living our lives right now? Yeah, so I don't think that we have a lot of information about the new variant. And of course, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, uh, to be honest, Rick. I mean, there's many uh, doctors who specialize in epidemiology or infectious diseases who, um, you know, can you know, can give, uh, you know, more accurate information, but just to, you know, provide some general information. I mean, it doesn't change many of these problems that we've known about for a long time. This is not a new virus at this point during the pandemic. I mean, we're, we're now into a second wave. We knew that it was seasonal and we, we knew that there was going to be this big up, uh, you know, uptick in community cases and a big risk that long-term care facilities would be affected. So it all comes back to the basics. I mean, we need the, we need the staffing crisis to be solved. We need to do everything we can to hire trained staff and get them into the homes. We need to do everything we can to make sure there's oversight in these homes, to make sure that infection control protocols are being followed. And as we've mentioned, we need to get the vaccine rolling out as soon as possible to save lives. Well said, and I agree. And Dr. Amit Arya, I really appreciate the time today. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Dr. Amit Arya is a palliative care physician specializing in long-term care. Joining us here on The Bill Kelly Show. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Vaccination clinics across Ontario, not enough of them, or not all of them, were opened. And, well, the the head of Ontario's vaccine task force is taking the blame, and, and rightfully so. You know, three months ago, most people didn't even think we could have a vaccine. Three weeks ago, we didn't have a single dose of vaccines. Now we have more than 13,000 people in the province of Ontario vaccinated. And tomorrow's a new day. We're going up to 19 hospitals, vaccination sites opening tomorrow. And we'll go onwards and upwards from there. 21 vaccination sites next week and getting ready for the really big numbers to roll at us. So we'll recover from this. Obviously, we got it wrong, and we've been spanked for that, and that's right and appropriate. And now we'll learn some lessons from it and get on with it. That is Ontario's Vaccine Task Force uh, boss, retired General Rick Hillier, admitting that, uh, yes, they got it wrong when opening just a handful of vaccination clinics over the holidays. All 17 of them are set to resume immunizations today, and that's good news, and hopefully we can continue to have them open uh, 24-7. Dr. Zane Chagla is an infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases, the Department of Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, and joins us now. Dr. Chagla, good morning. Hey, good morning. The Office of Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott uh, telling Global News that the province is changing its vaccine policy and is no longer going to reserve the second doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. All 90,000 of them are going to be out the door and they expect to finish them in the next several days. Should this have been done in the first place? You know, first, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk around this and I I think people need to just take a a step back and realize, you know, a mass vaccine campaign for COVID-19 for a vaccine that was approved only three weeks ago, you know, there are some bumps and and people are certainly... um, you know, getting some learnings from it. But, you know, everything is so novel here, the vaccine, the shipment, the supply chain, you know, the distribution, there was a point at the beginning that Donald Trump was saying that wouldn't come over the border, you know. So when we first got vaccines here, you know, I think that the the decision to reserve was fine, given uh, 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 how how scarce this resource was, how politically unstable this resource was. 
And, you know, the last thing we would want is just 6,000 given and that's it. And then we'd never get any again, basically. With that being said, you know, in the last week, the distribution has been fantastic around the world. The U.S. has given about 2 million doses. Israel has given a, a several hundred thousand doses. So certainly our 90,000 doses seem pretty stable to be matched, you know, in, in the year to come, or so in the months to come. And so, you know, I, I think it's a reasonable decision now to say, okay, fine, our supply chain is good. We realize Pfizer's production is going well. Things are getting over the border appropriately. We can take the risk that we are going to maybe delay things for a week or two while we're getting vaccine supply in. Uh, so, you know, it's a good decision now. And I think in, in reality, no clinic I know of in Ontario has actually maxed out their vaccinations and, you know, needed to wait until the, the, the new shipments have come in. UHN just finished their doses today, I think. Um, so that makes them able to continue along. So I don't think there was any delay because of that. And I think, you know, certainly going forward, it, it just means more people will get uh, vaccinated uh, moving through for sure. Is part of this, do you think, and, and we were just chatting about this in our newsroom yesterday, is part of this the fact that when you split the doses, whether it's 21 or 28 days or whatever the time frame was, uh, if you give the, the entire dose all at once, you you eliminate any possibility that an individual misses that time frame to get the second shot? Yeah, I mean, again, there's there's a buffer here. Health Canada has allowed, you know, even a couple of days early to a week or two late. So it's not the end of the world. I agree, like, you know, from a, a logistical standpoint, you know, if you reserve the dose, give the person, give them their shot, do it three weeks later, give them an appointment three weeks later to the date and time and have a dose waiting in the fridge for them, it makes it as perfect as possible but realizing as well, and good modeling data that came out from a group in Toronto, including Dr. Allison McGeer and Ashley Tweed from the Dalai Lama School of Public Health, basically saying, you know what, if you just pushed them all out and then just waited for the second dose to come in, you'd probably hit 30 to 40% more. You know, again, as UHN, if we kept with the old strategy, UHN would just stop vaccinating today, which is a waste of resources given that they have vaccines sitting in the fridge that could go out to more people. And again, the other big part of this is the clock starts for people day 10 to 14 where their immune responses kick in and they're protected. Not perfectly, but they get protection. And so, you know, it's much more tolerable from a modeling standpoint, from a public health standpoint, to have the clock start for more people rather and, and take the small risk of supply chain not necessarily going through, where in all reality, it probably is going to go through appropriately. And I think that's the decision the provinces has made, along with many other provinces across the country. Rick Samprin in for Bill Kelly here on The Bill Kelly Show on AM 980 in London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. Our guest is Dr. Zane Chagla, an infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases Department of Medicine at McMaster University. I want to switch gears and talk about this new variant that Mm. has broken in the UK, has now arrived here in Canada. Uh, Two cases in Durham region, uh, another one on Vancouver Island. Uh, I, I don't recall where the other one was, but uh, it's 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 spreading here in Canada. Let's start on the ground floor here. Is is there a difference between variant and strand or strain, or are they all the same thing? No. So a variant is is you know a, a mutation. So you know everything mutates. Every piece of life on this earth mutates, and viruses mutate a little bit more because they're a bit more unstable in how they replicate. And so you think, you know, a virus is not just a, a tree stump going up and down. It's actually, you know, different types, like a, a true tree with branches going everywhere. Uh, and, and so, you know, even if we look at the genotypes in Canada, there are probably 
number of different genotypes amongst all of us, uh, some of which have really no clinical consequence over the other. When, it, when we talk about a new strain, it is essentially a set of mutations that makes it fundamentally different than another virus. And, and you know, you could think of humans as a new strain from chimpanzees in that sense, where we are fundamentally very different in that in that that ballpark. And so, you know, that really hasn't happened here. It's been just a set of small mutations. The variant that we're talking about in, that originates in the UK uh, has some mutations, uh, particularly in that spike protein, which is a part of the the virus that adheres to the human cells that may lead to more infectivity. So when I'm exposed to COVID, my risk of getting it is a bit higher than than prior viruses. And that's been shown through the epidemiology and in some of the studies through London and the UK. Um, and so, you know, we are starting to see this emerge in, in travelers back from the UK. And in the UK, it seems to be replacing the normal circulating variants in the community, um, really proving or at least giving a good sense that it might be more transmissible. We are finding it in return travelers. The Durham couple apparently now has a contact with a return traveler from the UK. Um, you know, in in the context of all of this, many other countries looked in their own databases in Nigeria and in South Africa. They've noticed similar variants with similar type mutations, not the same, but, uh, you know, that, that have kind of the genetic code that could make it more transmissible. And so, you know, I think this really just brings up a big discussion of, you know, we have Canada, we're doing our own genetic surveillance. At the end of the day, we are going to be a global community and the border is going to be a point of entry for COVID as much as any other infectious disease. And we really need to talk about what's the appropriate strategy at the border. And, you know, I think, you know, the Durham couple, particularly who are in contact with a UK individual, really does say that maybe that quarantine process is not working well. And the stakes being so high, given that there are variants coming in from around the world, which may actually be worse than what we have currently, you know, we probably should make sure that border is, as a point of entry, is controlled as appropriately as possible to minimize the spread of something that we aren't seeing uh, locally. You explained the process of of the mutation beautifully. Um, I I do have a further question in terms Mm -hmm. of how the new strain or new variant develops. Uh, it's not as like, you know, uh, two people are infected and the virus from one body to the other is talking to each other. Um, but in the same sense, it is saying that, hey, I, I need to do this to get more transmissible or more lethal or whatever the case is. Is that, uh, in layman's terms, how, how it changes? Yeah, I mean, so you can think of it, you know, every certain number of replications, the virus makes a mistake and their genetic code gets changed. And again, some of those don't mean anything. Some of them make the virus less transmissible or replicatable, and so they'll eventually die out because they can't infect anyone else. And then once in a while, you get these changes that make the virus more transmissible. And then, you know, as we learned in school, natural selection, if you're more transmissible, it means you're able to spread more, which means you're able to get more trans, you know, and it just keeps cycling and cycling and cycling and replacing in that sense. So, you know, this could happen with the fact that millions of people are infected. And again, we have millions of copies of virus in a person. And so, you know, all it takes is a couple of events in, in one person. There is actually some speculation in the United Kingdom, particularly people that have very significant immunocompromising states, their viral loads can get very, very high and they can actually be almost the people that can generate these mutations. Uh, it's been seen in other diseases like Norwalk, where they can get mutants that circulate eventually in the community. Um, 
you know, and regardless, we're going to hear about this more and more. And again, you know, the UK, South Africa, and Nigeria are countries that have actually access to very good genetic surveillance. There are countries that don't have access to it that have been pummeled by COVID-19, where probably something like this has happened, and we're just not picking it up because no one is looking for it in a sense. So, you know, this is part of the natural evolution of viruses. You know, they don't remain the same from the beginning to the end. Uh, and yeah, this this um, this type of uh, surveillance is super important going forward. And even as we get vaccinated, super important going forward after that. Is the evolution or the mutation of COVID-19 more rapid than other viruses that are out there? No, I mean, it's, it's you know, there this, this, uh, this, this variant in, in uh, the United Kingdom has 23 mutations that are uh, 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 fixed on, and they're based on a prior mutant that was circulating uh, over the summertime that really has, has circulated around the world in that sense. Um, so, you know, it's not certainly at a higher rate. We talk about viruses like influenza, where they completely shift year to year, and essentially why we have to revaccinate everyone. It's much less than that. It's much, It's a little bit more than other viruses like measles, where, you know, again, you get one set of shots, you're pretty much done. They're super protective, and that's it. Um, so, yeah, you, you do have a little bit more diversity there than other viruses, but not certainly as much as, you know, we would expect, and not certainly as much to make things like a vaccine strategy um, uh, you know, uh, off the table or, or, you know, have a vaccine burn out after a few weeks in that sense. Dr. Zane Chagla is our guest, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital, also a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at McMaster University, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 980 in London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. Rick in for Bill today. Uh, you mentioned the vaccine. How does the new variant impact the current vaccines we've been we've been hearing that you know this vaccine can uh, be as effective as uh, you know the or as uh, as it has with the uh, normal quote-unquote COVID-19 now the new variant has come along and it's just as effective when um, uh, epidemiologists and, and and researchers are putting together these vaccines are they thinking about different mutations when they're implementing you know some of their tweaks and, and, and checks and balances yeah. So, I mean, so for, for the vaccine safety, yeah, again, it, it, it seems as if this is going to be fine to be vaccinated with a strategy. In fact, places like the UK are actually doubling down on vaccination as their strategy to get through this. It's important to know, you know, as much as we talk about a variant, you know, we talked about 23 mutations in this variant. The genetic code of the COVID-19 virus is, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of genetic elements. And so really, this these mutations represent a 1% difference between the virus that's currently circulating and, again, this variant. So 99% of it is conserved. When we see the virus, we make a response to the spike protein, which is what the immunization does as well. And, you know, again, you know, we make responses to that, that the 99% of that protein, not just that 1%. So, again, many, many suggestions that the viruses uh, should not be affected by our vaccine strategy. And, and Pfizer, Moderna, and even AstraZeneca are looking at this to confirm that's the case. You know, the, the really cool thing about our vaccine strategy currently is we have these mRNA vaccines uh, and the adenovirus-based vaccine that, that uh, AstraZeneca is developing. These are actually models where we can reverse engineer very quickly. You know, mRNA is something that once you have the sequence, you can then just, you know, go back, translate to what mRNA is in there. We've now figured out, Pfizer and Moderna, how to package it appropriately and put it into a vaccine. 
Uh, and so, you know, theoretically, you could go back three, four weeks later and say, okay, you know, the virus is, you know, if there was a huge event and the virus mutated, not that it's going to happen, you could make another vaccine relatively quickly. And I think that's that's one of the big lessons from this, and one of the big um, scientific advances for these vaccines coming out there, if they do work as well as, as promised, you know, our ability to create a vaccine on the spot with mutations, with changes, is a really easy feat of reverse engineering. You don't have to figure out, you know, I have to put the virus through this type of detergent or I have to take this component of the virus. You literally just have to reverse engineer, which is not a hard process with all the genetic information being freely available, uh, and then package it up and put it in a vaccine. So, you know, we have the ability to, to adapt with what's going forward. Uh, and, you know, I think it, it, it's a it's a huge feat for humanity that we're able to actually respond to viruses by developing vaccines relatively quickly. And I think that the development of this vaccine in really a matter of months, I think, has been a story that has not been as appreciated as I think it should be, because this could, you know, eventually end the pandemic, at least with, you know, other um, uh, companies coming on board with their own vaccinations or vaccines. This could spell the end of, of, of COVID-19. And I think that's what we were all hoping for. And I think maybe we're just kind of breathing a sigh of relief, but I think the development of the vaccine should have been heralded a little more uh, um Celebratory-like uh, when it did come up, but I, I do want to ask you about uh, the travel ban. Canada has imposed a travel ban on all flights from Britain until January the sixth to contain this new uh, strain or this new variant. Is closing the borders going to help, or uh, I mean, is this thing just going to mutate anyways and pop up here in individuals? Yeah, I mean, there's two big things. One is, yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're going to see trends transmission regardless i mean again they're still transmitting in the uk so january 6th it's not going to stop transmitting in the uk all of a sudden overnight you know you have to have a long-term strategy that actually means something in that sense um and number two you know as i mentioned there's countries that are doing good genetic surveillance like south africa the you know nigeria the united kingdom where we're actually identifying this prospectively there are other countries that are not that are still allowed to travel into Canada appropriately. And so, you know, I, I think, the again, this is a good time to start discussing long-term border strategies. And, you know, as we keep talking about, a 14-day quarantine is hard on most people. It assumes that they have access to money. They have access to, you know, someone to get food and groceries and drugs and, and, and supplies. Um, they have, you know, uh, the ability to stay home for 14 days without any mental health issues or anything along those lines. You know, I think you could very much incorporate testing, pre-departure, post-departure, and a day seven test, shorten the quarantine period, really work to identify people coming into the country that are positive, send them to public health and make sure they're isolated appropriately. And I think that that paradigm shift not only allows us to protect ourselves from the U.K., from other countries that are actually picking up their own variants, from countries that are not picking up their own variants because they're not doing the surveillance. And I think even in the post-vaccine era, as we, we you know, as we're going to be fortunate as Canadians, we all be vaccinated in September. That's not the rest of the world. And again, there is going to be COVID coming in over the border, identifying it, isolating it, and, you know, appropriately allowing people to travel if needed. Um, you know, is really a more effective and sustainable control rather than blanket travel bans. And I think that's that's one thing on the table moving forward is that we really talk about this long-term strategy and how to make it happen rather than just relying on a 14-day quarantine, which, you know, as we're hearing more and more, that 
people often can't do it entirely. They, they try, but it's not perfect by any means. Wish we had more time, but we have to leave it there. Dr. Zane Chagla, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. No worries. All the best. You too. Dr. Zane Chagla is an infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sounds like elementary school classes in the Hamilton Public School Board won't start January 4th as scheduled because of a delay in the delivery of some devices that are needed by elementary students. Manny, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, good morning, Rex. So, um, thank you for waiting for me. It was a little late getting on the call. No problem. You're you're a busy guy. I understand that. So, what's the holdup here? What's happening? Hey, Rex. Thanks for reaching out for the clarification. So, uh, just want to clarify some of the, the numbers we're working on right now. We um, expectation ministries that January fourth, the first day, we'll have full remote um, learning, and uh, we we are going to have devices being picked up on January fourth. So, one logistic pieces around this was uh, being notified the, the Monday before the holiday break uh, created a bit of a challenge because we need them to redeploy all the devices on our current inventory, which is about almost 6,000. And we have to then um, redeploy them based on the survey results that parents gave us to different locations. So it's not always an equal match that the number of parents who requested one equals the number of devices in the school because the needs do vary across the community. So what's happening as of um, up to today is that our IT department has been collecting them, refreshing them, and tomorrow our school uh, principals and vice principals and managers from certain departments are going to be begging them um, um, tomorrow all day in schools, and then there'll be communication going out to our families and the communities for a day pickup on January 4th. So we might delay for some students on, um, on January 4th because they might not have a device. But for the majority of our students, um, like in secondary, they already have a device. Our secondary students uh, have, a, we have a one-to-one deployment. So our secondary um, program will commence as of the first day. And we also have 9,000 students already in full remote programming in elementary who already are set up. So that we expect to start um, business as usual on January 4th. But a little flexibility on the first day for those who are in person who require a device um, because the pickup will be on that first day. So there might be some delay for some students, and then we'll uh, begin um, on Tuesday, January 5th, for, for those students who still need to get a device. So at most, the delay will be a day for some of those students that don't have devices right now. That's correct, Rick. And, and um, we had hoped if we had heard that two weeks prior or three weeks prior, we could have done um, that logistical work beforehand, because what people realize, those devices are being used in schools. So um, once we pull them away, we're pulling them away from schools and redistributing across the district. So that takes some time. And we also need to give our teachers um, who have been teaching full in person a bit of time on that first day to pivot to, tra- you know, change their lesson plans to, to full remote. So it's only for um, those that are in person and for a select few and then we'll begin um, Tuesday January 5th so like we have three models out there I remind people in the community secondary we're ready to go elementary who already been full remote we're ready to go it's those in-person ones but we need to give some time for the device pickup on the first day if COVID-19 case counts continue to remain a concern 
and the vaccine has not been administered to the general public, which we're not expecting for at least a few more months. Can you envision the rest of the school year being handled remotely? And are you equipped to do that? Yeah, well, let me go back to the number of cases. I'll say what I've said from the beginning. You know, as the director, when entered into this school year, this was new territory, you know, uh, around um, cohort tracking, all the public health measures. But, you know, as of last week, we had about, you know, 200 uh, positive cases and um, a handful of outbreaks. I still believe that the safest place for our students to be is in schools um, because the most of the positive cases, the majority of them, have been from community spread, not because of spread within the schools. So my hope is that it's only this short period of time um, that the ministry has put in place to prevent community spread over the holiday season to come into the school and that we we resume in our in-person model. Um, And I said to people, when I look at we have... um, 40,000 students currently attending in person, and uh, we have over 5,000 permanent staff working every day. When I look at the number of cases um, being um, 200, it is very, very small. But if the ministry does make that decision, um, yeah, we have some learnings from last spring. We've standardized our platforms. We've even ordered uh, 1,000 more devices um, uh, to have on hand and to distribute if, if the need changes. Um, so we're ready, but my hope is that we will resume back to our in-person models. What kind of feedback have you received from those who are learning online? What's working and what hasn't gone so well? Yeah, it's, it's, I've heard a range. Um, one of the things is around uh, the, you know, um, students who may not learn in that kind of mode, right, where they might need more you know, direct, explicit uh, teaching, and I've heard others who've said this mode of teaching and the, and the synchronous learning my teacher's providing and uh, the information they're posting on our virtual platforms has, has really worked for me. Um, but we know learning is a social construct. So what, what I worry about long-term implications are the, the social, emotional impacts of students who, who've been out of school since last March. Um, so it is the best of an alternative when we're in the middle of a pandemic. But I I will will say that I believe the blended approach is is the way to go. And we've been promoting that we need to teach our kids how to engage in learning in the physical world, that being in person, and also in the digital world, because today's society, we need to know how to engage in both. Um, But I've heard a range of, of, of feedback, even, you know, you heard about exams. So some of our students we're really struggling with what secondary exams would look like versus a more performance-based type of assessment where they can demonstrate their learning. Um, so we've, we've had to make those shifts as well. And um, we've heard a bit of fatigue. We've heard a bit of, of students who've said that, you know, screen time and from parents that sometimes they're, they're fatigued around being on the screen for long periods of time. So, um, so uh, again, that's why I hope that uh, we will shift back on January 11th and in elementary to our in-person and January 25th to secondary. But we have to be prepared and we will be prepared to continue to provide full remote if that's the direction the province continues to go in. Manny, uh, appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, join us and explain uh, what's going on today. 
Thank you, Rick. Keep well. You too. Manny Figueroa is the Director of Education with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.